series what the Buddha untaught. And I it'd be helpful just to in a couple of sentences review the previous talk so that the one today can dovetail be dovetailed with The first uh, evening, the, my presentation had two parts. First part was um, an invitation to open our minds to not knowing, to come to see things freshly. And the second part of that presentation was an, again an invitation more specifically to stop acting on the assumption that things are permanent. The second day talk was a corollary of that last topic. It was an invitation to stop clinging to that which is impermanent. To see in the futility of doing so because we cling to something that's impermanent it's not going to be very helpful. Today's talk focuses on the key reason, the key motive for this whole assumption of permanence and clinging to that which we assume to be permanent, but isn't. And, and that is the fabrication of me. So the title of today's talk is Unlearning me. Where does this um, sense of me, of self, come from? How is it conceived? Interestingly enough, conception is a is a very interesting word because it refers both to the fertilization of an egg and the fabrication of an idea. of a concept. It's, it's not a coincidence that we use the same word for that, for the two apparently different things, but very closely connected. Uh, 
fact, the story of sperm and egg uh, is in itself riddled with concepts. Uh, at this point, I want to stay clear of this biological story. We can go back to it at some time. And focus on the conceptual conception of me. Not the biological conception, but the conceptual conception. Very similar. In my first talk, about, I talked about the work of Jean Piaget, Swiss psychologist, and how he found that infants develop the sense of the constancy of objects only when they become, say, six or more likely eight or twelve months old. He also found that at about the same time is a time when the infant begins to see himself, herself, as a constant being. He discovers me. And also he discovers you as having continuity. And soon this concocted self, really, becomes the center of the world. For the child, of course, is discovering his her body, but also is discovering his area of control. Very much marked by its possessions. Children can be ferocious about getting back the, their toys, who this other child took. And in no way, in no way, for a small child, does that indicate a particular liking of that toy. The toy is a marker of his territory. As we grow up, this thing becomes a little more dignified, more hidden. Unless we are driving and somebody touches our car, then, oh, again, <laughs> all hell breaks loose. <laughs> But um, we are a little more restrained. And in fact, uh, more than the children, we generally, uh, the small children, we generally go through the motions of like, don't like, before we try to take possession of this or that. 
its age, its, its culture, its individual, in fact, as a favorite way, a preferred way of, of doing this. In fact, what this really entails is what I've described before as the as a sequence of dependent arising or dependent origination. Just to go over it very quickly, when contact is made with an object, with something, the, the, the feeling is it feels pleasant, it feels unpleasant, it feels somewhere in between. As soon as it feels pleasant, then I feel pleasure. It feels unpleasant, I feel this pleasure, and the I begins to puff up. It's I. I want to have it. Just I look at it, it looks pleasant. Then I feel pleasure, I want to have it, I grasp it, I cling to it. And the I is a very active actor throughout this sequence. It's also the final product of the sequence, but it's there. I describe it in my last talk as uh, being part of um, a feedback, positive feedback process for the final product, if you want to discover, to describe it this way, the I being the final product, but it activates a sequence. But I is coming up all along anyway. And so each one of us activates this sequence in the favorite way. It may be objects, it may be relationships, it may be sex, it may be ideas that we cling to. But there's a story that Joseph Gosen and retreats. I heard it more than once, and I think it's an interesting one. He says he was doing a, a long self-retreat at IMS, and um, there's an area where retreatants are told not to go because they, it's not totally quiet. There's a staff area. And he strayed into that area in his walk. And out of the window, open window, it was summer, I suppose, of the office, he heard a word. And this word destroyed the rest of his peace and calm, whatever was left. For days, this word haunted him. 
and this word was just one word was Joseph Joseph he couldn't figure out what was about Joseph <laughs> totally centered in his name so that's another thing that we cling to of course words particularly if it, they happen to be our name um, there's an expression of reifying words we reify we give the word a reality so Jose it's just a word but I attribute it the reality of who I am. Pretty ridiculous, but we do it so often that it seems to be the normal thing to do. Now, as I said, there are different cultures emphasizing different things. The culture of my generation, for instance, and it's still true, of course, emphasized money, emphasized credential as an embodiment of I. I felt, not anymore, but I felt vindicated in my selfhood because I had a PhD from Caltech and because I had a, a curriculum that was uh, studded with uh, good positions and, and good grants and stuff. This cult of professional credentials hasn't been around all the time. In fact, I found a, a very interesting book called The Culture of Professionalism, which uh, traces back the origin of this culture, and they, the author assigns it to the mid-Victorian period, which means the middle of the last century, of, of the 19th century, that is, a century and a half ago. Let me just share um, a paragraph from there, a couple of paragraphs, relating to, to the concept of character. Thank God we don't hear too much talk about character today. A little bit, but not too much. But there was a time when character was what defined you. A man of character. No women, of course. Man of character. <laughs> For the mid-Victorians, a person's work was more than an unrelated series of jobs and projects more than a utilitarian and functional response to need and limited desire. Work was the person. Statement to the world of his, his internal resources, confidence and discipline. Further down he says, as an indwelling idea of self, as a core of continuous existence, one's character 
supported an ambitious individual as he exerted the supreme effort of attention to develop his real talents. And further below. The impressiveness of a man's worldly credentials reflected the strength of his inner character, the permanence of his inner continuity, which corresponded to the outer continuity of a career. Of course, we inherited that, but it's, it's less uh, imposing now, this idea of I mean, you know, tenured professors can, even tenured professors can get fired and stuff. There are other things that have entered into the, into the place of primacy in our culture. For instance, instant celebrity. You can vindicate yourself by instant celebrity, even if it doesn't last very long. You're still uh, an ex-celebrity. You can carry that on. So, the point I'm trying to make is that it can be done in different ways. Is affirmation of the Separability of self, the in inherentness of the concept of self. Uh, what I call selfing. The problem is that this whole selfing project is doomed. If we depend on the dependent arising way of creating the self, then the moment the, what we grasp and then cling to is achieved, then what else do we do? So finally, the this cl interest in clinging, it, it's less, you know. Once you bought that beautiful pair of shoes or whatever it is, it does lose interest somehow. You need to find something else. The good thing about character is that uh, you can pretend that it lasts longer, you know. So the, there's different stabilities, different selves with different stability, depending on what you construct the self with. But assuming that your construction is very good, it's still doomed, because Guess what? Believe it or not, you're going to die. 
And so will I, of course, before any of you, almost certainly. So, what do we do with this uh, inevitable demise of the self? Well, religions have come up with a gimmick. And the gimmick is the soul. This entity is indeed immortal. And stays separate, doesn't mix with anybody else, you know. Goes on there and, and is received in heaven or in hell, wherever it is, but still there. The word for soul in Sanskrit is Atman. So, if we really believed in the soul, we wouldn't be so nervous about death, would we? So, perhaps this soul idea doesn't carry much conviction for many of us anyway. What does the Buddha offer us as an alternative? The alternative is entitled anatta. In, in, in Sanskrit and Pali, Pali is the language of the Buddha, are very related languages. In Pali, an is no, and atta is the root for atman. So, anatta means no soul. Means unlearning the soul. Unlearning the doctrine of the soul. Does he offer us anything a little more concrete instead? Well, he offers some metaphors. And some of you may have heard of the metaphor of the aggregates. When the Buddha, the aggregates, I'll explain what that means in a moment. When the Buddha gave a talk, he'd often, sometimes, he had a little platform in front of him, and in that platform, he poured five little piles of seeds. And he says, that's us. The idea of the seeds is that they are distinct things, and, and it's not a solid thing. One of the piles is a, uh, represents the body. And the separate things, <laughs> uh, seeds, are the separate parts of the body. The other four parts represent four aspects of the mind, and I don't want to go into that, it's not important how we distinguish these four parts. But, again, they're just aspects. There's no solidity there, that's what he's telling us. We just 
have these things that are piled up, yeah? Sure. There's some relationship between the seeds. They're touching each other in the pile, like in our body. The parts of our body are connected. Sure. And, and the five piles are close to each other. But they're not a solid thing. They're called the aggregates in the English translation, anyway. And he says, isn't it ridiculous? We cling to this thing and insti insist in calling it me. He's offered other metaphors, and here's from um, a statement by a nun, a bhikkhuni, called Vajira. This happened at Savati, a place in northern India. In the morning, the Bikuni Vajira dressed and taking bowl and robe entered Savati for alms, for begging for food. When she had walked for alms at Savati and had returned from her alms round, after her meal she went to the blind man's grove for the day's abiding. Having plunged into the blind man's grove, she sat down at the foot of a tree for the day's abiding. Then Mara, the evil one, desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in the, in the Bikuni Vajira, desiring to make her fall away from concentration, approached her and addressed her in verse. By whom has this being been created? Where is the maker of this being? Where has the being arisen? Where does the being cease? Then it occurred to Bikuni Vanjira. Now, who is this that recited the verse, a human being or a non-human being? Then it occurred to her, ah, it's Mara, the evil one, who has recited the verse deciding to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in me, desiring to make me fall away from concentration. By the way, a little parenthesis here. We do, do we not, sometimes in the middle of a sit, get this visit by Mara? which is, of course, the part of our mind, trying to make us feel insecure. Because where's the I? I've been sitting here for half an hour, and nothing has and lit up my eye. Then the Bikuni Vajira, having understood this is Mara, the evil one, replied to him in verses. Why now do you assume a being? 
Mara. Is that your speculative view? This is a heap of sheer formation. Sheep of here formations. Here, no being is found. Just as with an assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used. She's saying chariot is only a bunch of things that put together, take them apart. Just things taken apart. Put them together, call them chariot, and there's the idea of chariot. Just as with an assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used. So when the aggregates exist, there is a convention, a being. It's from this, it's only suffering that comes to be. Suffering that stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be. Nothing but suffering ceases. And Mara, the evil one, realizing the Vikuni, Vikuni Vajira knows me, sad and disappointed, disappeared right there. Another way in which the Buddha taught the understanding of a, sorry, the Buddha untaught the doctrine of a separate self is by making us see that the problem insists, the problem starts, sorry, when we insist in assuming, in postulating our birth as separate, unrelated entities. When questioned by somebody called Mogaraja about how to regard the world so that the king of death will not see us, the king of death will not see us, the Buddha answered, if you are always aware Mogaraja you will look at the world and see its emptiness if you give up looking at yourself as a soul as a fixed and special entity then you will have given yourself away to go beyond death. Look at the world like this and the king of death will not see you. Even more explicitly somewhere else, let me find that. Buddha says elsewhere in the scriptures there is monks 
and unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. If there were not that unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, there would not be the case that the emancipation from the born, become, made, fabricated would be discerned. But precisely because there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, emancipation from the born, become, made, fabrication is discernible. And as often in the scriptures, there's a little poem here, recitation. The born become produced, made, fabricated, impermanent, composed of aging and death, a nest of illness, perishing, come from nourishing, and that guide that is craving is unfit for delight. The escape from that is calm, permanent, beyond inference, unborn, unproduced, the sorrowless, stainless state, the cessation of stressful qualities, the stilling of fabrications, the bliss. It's really quite simple, maybe. The presentation could be a little confused, but the central issue is quite simple. No birth of the self, no death of the self. You don't invent yourself as having born as a separate entity. Who's going to die? There's nobody around to die. You don't identify with body and mental characteristics. You just don't create a self identifying with this body. And then that's it. There's a process of a body and a process of a mind like anywhere. It was never born separate. It's never dying separate. Constantly, look, constantly parts of us appear and disappear. I have beautiful black hair, long, plentiful. Of course, I could dye it, but I'd be fooling myself, really. I mean, there are many other things that have fallen by the wayside, you know. I mean, all these spots on my skin, I never had those. That nice, beautiful, smooth skin. You wouldn't believe it, but it's true. <laughs> and and it, it, it was the same label, Jose it was called. And it's continuity. Fingerprints, passport, prove it's the same person. You wouldn't believe it, you know. So, the question, the problem, is when somebody appears, some part of 
his mind appears and starts claiming ownership of all that stuff, you know. But if nobody claims ownership, then there'll be nobody around to claim bloody murder, to cry bloody murder when the body dies, you know. <laughs> Didn't belong to anybody. Didn't belong to anybody. We looked after it, sure, you know. And when we buy a house and have a garden and we look after it, but we don't have to keep doing it. When I die, my my home passes on to my children. They will tend to it, and uh, and whatever thoughts uh, pass through my head, it was spread out in conversations with people, even in retreats and so on. You know, there's no death of all of that. I like the way the 13th century Zen, Japanese Zen teacher, master, puts it. His name is Dogen, Master Dogen. He said in a quote that's uh, quite well known to many, he said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. In other words, to study the self is to unlearn the self. To unlearn something that never existed in the first place. So this creates an incredible space to accommodate our life without possessiveness. We can accommodate in our life all the interpersonal stuff. That's, it's most of, of that we, we think will live is so stimulated, if not nurtured by interpersonal stuff, by conversations and readings and it doesn't come from inside right here. And and we can be more open to that. If we do art, you know the the possessiveness about a piece of work. It's something that um, actually takes away from him. Right? My partner Raquel is an artist and she's recently been doing work in the river, sculptures in the river. And, and so it's become very clear that the artist is both herself and the river. The river will take these rocks sometimes and take them away and the river has tides and so it covers it completely and one 
twice a day it covers it completely and twice a day it reveals it. There, there are cases of vandalism, and call it vandalism, but without the charge on that. It's very interesting that, uh, how she can sort of be at peace with that, you know. I mean, not all, not all the time, of course, sure. There's uh, I, too, not to, to have a simulation of uh, equanimity, but to discover the equanimity when it comes, and, and to nourish that equanimity with a sense that we are not the sole authors of what we do. So clear. I mean, of course, the talk I'm giving is, is just uh, basically a, a rewording of what the Buddha said, and a few others, and experiences that I have picked up here and there. So, it's possible to unlearn the self. What does this unlearning do to our lives? How are we going to manage in our lives if we let go of the sense of who we are? False as it is, but still, it has, uh, it has propped up our activities in, 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 in many ways. Undoubtedly, it's, it's a difficult transition, but it's a very doable transition. Surely, in some settings, we continue to play our roles to the best of our ability. Professionally, we have a role to play, and we play the best we can. But we don't attach the tag of that's me, to that, insofar as we have this awareness that there is no me to brag about or to be ashamed about. Still, we do have to play roles. but to see these roles for what they are, not as an excuse to construct ourselves. And if they have it to continue to construct ourselves around roles persist, we notice it. And we say, oh yes, there, there he is, Mara again, trying to take us away from the path to freedom. Sure. So, we begin to discover that it's possible to live not so dependent any longer on the judgments of others or even ourselves about this entity. Instead, 
to stay as close as possible to the truth of things as we can. That is the only validating that counts. Are we being as truthful as we can? And, of course, the hour of death will come, or so-called death, if you wish, even if the king of death doesn't find us, but still there'll be something that can be called death in ordinary language. And, and when that happens, to be totally present with that too, not to pretend it's not fair. So present that we will really discover that we are just a fiber in the vast fabric of life. That's it for now.